I would like to see a reform of parliamentary processes. I think it's very distressing that so much that happens by people of goodwill and good faith in Parliament is lost in the in the polemic ideological debate. But I'd, I'd like to see our leaders standing up for evidence-based decision-making. Hello, my name is Ali Moore and welcome to a University of Melbourne podcast on the brave new world of work, a series about the future and the skills and the outlook needed to make the most of it. Today, policymakers who learn from the past. At a time when political discourse is arguably more polarised than ever, what can we learn from the past and what might the policymakers of the future learn from us? To explore this, I'm joined by Professor Gillian Triggs, former President of the Human Rights Commission and current Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne, and the Right Honourable John Brumby, former Premier of Victoria and a man who holds a number of appointments, including National President and Chairman of the Australia-China Business Council and Chair of the Melbourne School of Government Advisory Board. Welcome to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. John Brumby, let's start with you. You've had many years in government policy making positions and you still are very involved at various levels. What about today? How do you rate the policymakers of today? Oh, I think that's a that's a difficult um, question. I'm, I'm often asked about it and I'm not critical of the policymakers of today, uh, but I think um, they are presented with um, bigger uh, and deeper challenges than we've probably had in the last 10 or 20 years. So you think of all of the, the wicked policy problems uh, which we talk about, which can range from climate change, you know, problems where there are uh, the solutions are long-term and it's it's difficult because many of the changes that you have to make have a short-term impact, uh, right through to what we do about terrorism, right through to what we do about um, you know, this terrible problem the world faces at the moment with more than 60 million people who are homeless refugees around the world. So these are these are all um, extremely difficult policy problems. And I think our institutions, which were really set with rules and frameworks established 100, 200 more years ago, um, are really struggling to keep pace with the need for more agile decision-making and more consensus-based decision-making. Gillian Triggs, what about you? How do you rate the policymakers of today? And it doesn't just have to be in the political sphere. I rate them very poorly. And I think one of the problems has been this phenomenon uh, in, in sort of recent language of the post-truth world that we're, we, while we've always been subject to propaganda, to spin, to misinformation, there's an odd phenomenon that appears to be emerging at the moment, which is that there's an intolerance for expert opinions, for reports, for inquiries, for facts and evidence, and a growing need to satisfy ideology and or subjective views, partly reflecting the sheer volume of information that's available. But I think on the major policy issues that John has quite correctly raised, we've actually had really good science, evidence, reports, data collection, all sorts of serious uh, minds going to resolve major policy issues, whether it's the mass movement of peoples across the world, uh, managing uh, global trade, the digital economy, uh, particularly, obviously, climate change. Uh, I think in Australia, we we have not been able to turn that information 
into the agility that John quite correctly says we need. Uh, we've lost that ability to respond and we've moved into highly polarised uh, political positions. And I think that's a real problem for the future and something we have to learn from. By its very nature, though, isn't policy making going to be politicised? By its very nature, political decisions have to be made, but those political decisions need to be made on an informed evidence base. And I think in the past, in this 20th century emphasis on science and evidence and facts, that informed policy uh, to a higher degree, perhaps greater trusted public officials. Now we find that although there's always a political element, you, policy and politics is where you've got to make a decision where you've got different balances and you've got to come up with an answer. But my concern is not with that. My concern is that the policies are being developed almost rejecting fundamental expert advice. I mean, the Finkel report's an example, but we've seen it on climate change, but we see it on uh, refugee policy. We see it on um, domestic violence, on crime. Uh, so many of the issues that, that are relevant, they, they've become far more politicised than they should when we've really got to solve the problems. So what's the motivation? I mean, it would appear if we look at the, the topic that we're talking about today, policymakers who learn from the past, from what you're saying, policymakers of today are actually ignoring the past. You know, when we talk about this at, at Melbourne University, it's about evidence-based policy. And I'm a big believer of uh, public service and independent, impartial public service that's highly skilled, that gives advice to governments without fear or favour. That's the best public service, and that's what it should aspire to. And the best policy will be evidence-based policy. So I don't think it's that there's a shortage of people in the public service or amongst department secretaries that, that don't believe in evidence-based policy. They do. It's just that amongst, you know, in the world around us, in the world in which our political and business and community leaders operate, this um, distortion has occurred about what's truth and what's not truth, what's fact and what's not fact, the post-truth era. And that, for many voters, for many voters, the people who decide, who make and break governments, for many of them, they're having trouble, you know, distinguishing between what's fact and what's not. And then, if you've got that interaction between meddling in the facts, social media and political systems, um, then you get a parliament on the issue of climate change, for example, which has just been a, you know, an horrific mess in Australia, really, for what now the best part of a decade since, since Kevin Rudd should have called the double dissolution election on climate change, since the Greens voted down the uh, climate change bill. And it's just been a mess. And uh, aggravated particularly by uh, Tony Abbott, by Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abbott, and there's just been a mess since. And you can't get a consensus. Why can't you get a consensus? Because there are elements at the extremes on both sides that can't agree on a single course forward. That's that's what's happening. And I don't think it's a lack of commitment between the mainstream of the Labor Party and the mainstream of the Liberal Party. I think it's a fracturing of our system on extreme left and extreme right. Perhaps I, I can say to John, I, I think it is a leadership problem. I think we have not had courageous leadership to stand up against these extreme views, whether from the left or the right. And we see very able people, well-educated uh, as our leaders, Mr Shorten, Mr Turnbull, being pulled into areas and issues that they will perhaps not otherwise be comfortable with. And that comes back to something that I think has become very important, and that is the, the question of authenticity of leadership. And I think that's something that 
Mr. Trump was able to achieve in America because he's reached back to the people we've left behind. And we're missing that authenticity in our own leaders in Australia because we sense that they're actually being driven by political concerns from extreme aspects of their parties. Uh, That's actually driving them down pathways that we know as Australians they don't actually believe in. I think, you know, that our institutions haven't kept pace with the world that is changing around us, and I'm talking particularly about our parliamentary systems and the way we do question time, it's still a very adversarial system and it's not the best way to solve problem. If you got the best chairs or CEOs in a room today and ask them, how do you solve a problem? Most of them would say you get half a dozen clever people around the table and you talk about the problem and you come up with a consensus and that's how you change it. Parliament doesn't work like that. It's a very, very adversarial system. But you've got to try and find a mechanism to develop that and our parliament isn't that mechanism. It's a very old-fashioned institution. Whereas universities, which are very old-fashioned universities, have managed, I think, to evolve and have managed to become more modern. And um, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a lesson in that. And the Melbourne model, you know, is, a, is an example of a, an age-old institution, Melbourne University, as old as the state itself, evolving to, you know, in changing times with a different offer. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been very successful. But this was going to be my question, that if we've got the institutions that we've got, and while there might be reform, it's not coming tomorrow. So how in our current environment, which you both paint as relatively depressing, I should say, how do we get better policy making? Well, I, I do come from the University of Melbourne. I had my did my law degree here and ultimately my PhD. And I, I'm morally certain that one of the greatest contributions universities can make to young people, future policymakers, is to teach them analytical thinking based on evidence. Challenge uh, the preconceived ideas, but do so from an evidence base, but to be willing to, to use John's word, to be agile, but to be intellectually sceptical, demanding, critical, uh, and analytical. And I think the point about that is whether you've done veterinary science or business or law uh, or arts, if you have developed that intellectual skill of agility and and, uh, original thinking, then you can uh, allow Australia to deal with these problems. And that can go through the public service up, hopefully, into public positions. Where you you say there is a, a set way of thinking and doing something and you promote that thinking, without proper evidence, then I think you become stultified. Universities have got a crucial role in contributing to uh, to public debate and, and policy. We see that in things like the School of Government here at Melbourne University. Uh, we see it in things like the Grattan Institute, which isn't the university, but which is part of this Parkville precinct, and it's about independent critical thinking. And the, the other role I would add to uh, what Gillian said about the universities is just universities now are economic powerhouses. And so if you look at this Parkville precinct, it's an economic powerhouse of Melbourne and the state. If you go out to Monash, ditto, um, out in that cluster, uh, and you know you look overseas, the role of Stanford University and Silicon Valley, you look at the UK, Cambridge, that Cambridge cluster, there are something like 50,000 small businesses, many of them in the science and R&D area, clustered around Cambridge. So, so universities, critical role, thinking, public policy, public debate, uh, research, uh, but also increasingly economic drivers uh, in in this whole creative economy, if I could if I could use that expression. So against this very extensive backdrop that you've both painted, and and I know that we started this whole uh, chat with you, John, pointing out 
how much more complicated policymaking has become today. But what would your advice be to policymakers of the future, bearing in mind that the institutions are not necessarily the correct institutions, the issues are so much more difficult to grapple with, the political discourse is so much more uh, extreme, if you like? Well, I don't think the advice is too much different from what we've been talking about this morning, and that is that if you're looking at developing policy, um, it needs to be evidence-based. So you've got to find, try and find the the evidence, the clear evidence and the facts and build policy off the back of that. I think the other point I'd say about policy is the two bits that are crucial are the evidence and secondly, what I call the the collaboration or the, the roundtables, I used to call them in government. If you've got a difficult policy problem, and it might be on health, get all the players around the room, you know, from, from the doctors through to the practitioners, through to the consumers, through to the unions, get everyone around the room. Here's what the facts say. The facts say that diabetes is growing at an alarming rate. The facts say you will go blind and you will die of heart disease if you don't treat your diabetes. So what do we do about that? And that, to me, it's a bit old-fashioned, but it is still the best way. Now, you can meld into that collaboration all the social media things we've been talking about. So you can use technology to help get a wider range of views. But evidence and listening to people, listening not just to the experts, but to everybody who's a stakeholder is still the best way to develop policy. Yes, well, I completely agree, of course. Um, Although, of course, it's been so sad, in my view, to see that that kind of consultation went out to our Indigenous Australians to look make proposals for constitutional change. They came up with um, a reasoned view about wanting a constitutional amendment to allow some form of advisory body in the, I think, confident belief that they will be listened to and that at least there will be some attempt to respond to their, uh, their proposals. But it's been apparently rejected out of hand that looks extremely disrespectful to Indigenous Australians uh, and has left us with a, 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 a brick wall or an on pass. We're going nowhere. I think, of course, we need to be more respectful of the evidence. I completely agree about the necessity for greater levels of consultation with the people affected. I would like to see a, a reform of parliamentary processes. I think it's very distressing that so much that happens by people of goodwill and good faith in Parliament, is lost in the in the polemic ideological debate. But I'd like to see our leaders standing up for evidence-based decision-making. But I think we also need to be much more respectful of civil society and of the various groups within the, within the community that know what they're talking about. It may not be possible politically or constitutionally, but at least to be respected and drawn into the discussion to find, as John has said, some form of consensus. It's not impossible, uh, but it needs to be done before positions become so polarised that nobody can move in any direction at all. And then you end up in a situation where actually nothing will happen. So we don't have the vision and we don't have a nation that's behind that vision anymore. There are so many issues and and clearly so many challenges that that face policymakers today. And I thank you both enormously for giving your thoughts about, uh, well, I guess the environment that we live in. And uh, let's hope that we can go forth and do better. (laughs) Thank (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a University of Melbourne discussion between Professor Gillian Triggs, John Brumby and me, Ali Moore. In the changing world of work, the Melbourne model is preparing students for the future beyond their degree. To find out more, visit unimelb.edu.au and look for Melbourne talent.